We begin? Let's begin. So welcome to episode, what, 42 of uh, Burroughs and Burbs on affordable housing. And uh, I think Scott and I, Scott Hobbs and I put this together last night. We said, should we have a, a conversation? Yeah, we should. Um, what should we talk about? We should talk about the thing that's on everybody's mind, at least if you're in Southwestern Fairfield County, uh, people are talking about the developments going on, particularly in Greenwich and now proposed in New Canaan. And uh, there's a lot of education going on and I know people wanna talk about this. So I thought we would try and get together, Scott and I, so it was Scott's idea. Why don't we get together a few experts who have been talking about this and educating the public for quite some time now and see if we could have a reasonable conversation um, about affordable housing. Not these particular projects, but affordable housing, generally speaking. Uh, so we looked around and we said, who's expert? And the first expert was Francis Pickering, part of the Western Council of Governments. Uh, that is all of the towns here in um, Southwestern Connecticut. I'll let you do a better job of describing what Westcog is than, than I just did. Um, but I know that you've been um, educating people about the affordability, uh, affordable housing and 830G for quite some time. And I know Ryan Fazio and ten, uh, Senator uh, Tony Huang uh, have also been uh, working on this for quite some time. So thank you very much, gentlemen, for, for joining us tonight, uh, today. Uh, Scott, why did we, why did you decide that this was the most important thing that we could be talking about this Thursday? Well, I think for, for some of the people on this call, I mean, in particular, uh, Senator Wang and, and Fazio and uh, Pickering uh, and Francis up there, we've been talking about affordable housing for a very long time. There's been some stuff inside of Connecticut that is, um, you know, while I think most people would agree it's a noble goal that we want everybody to have access to affordable housing how you achieve it is really tricky. And then anytime you start playing around with the markets, it becomes very dangerous. And over the years, the folks up in Hartford in particular, but you see it also in Albany and in Trenton and in all sorts of other places, um, they try to come up with solutions. And not surprisingly, a lot of the solutions have a lot of unintended consequences. And right now in Lower Fairfield County in particular, uh, Connecticut's 830G rule which mandates that every municipality should have at least 10% of their housing is deeded as affordable or government controlled as affordable. Um, otherwise local zoning rules should not apply is starting to have some consequences which are, are likely very detrimental toward the community. And inside of Greenwich and in other communities nearby, similar things have been happening. And again, the other gentlemen who, who we've invited here have been right at the front lines of this issue and it's likely that they have some great things in order to say that we have interest to the real estate community as to what's happening, what the implications are for these, uh, these sort of rules. I'm going to say it in one sentence. All the angry people who are saying, why are you ruining my town? Immediately turn to senators, state senators and say, fix it. And if they don't turn to senators and ask them to fix it up in Hartford, they turn to you, Scott Hobbs, the head of the housing authority and say, well, why don't you just fix it? Why don't you just build some affordable housing? So, um, Ryan, are you feeling any pressure? Uh, Senator uh, Huang, are you feeling any pressure to just fix it? Not only pressure, I think we could both feel a great desire to fix it. 
um, I submitted a legislative letter. This is a you know basically legislative initiative uh, this term uh, to address to reform significantly 833. And I know Tony has really been the if, uh, a if not the leader on protecting local control of planning and zoning and also reforming 833 in the legislature. And he's been talking about it for years and is as or more knowledgeable than anyone in the legislature on it. Um, this certainly in the past year has become especially demoralizing to, um, to localities, to our communities here in Lower Fairfield County. And it's probably slated to get worse. I said at the press conference in New Canaan last week that um, I know you're all frustrated with the um, proposal and, and I certainly am too. It's going to get worse if we do not fix this in Hartford, if we do not do something about it. Um, and Greenwich is the perfect example of that because I think now there's seven applications I was talking to uh, our local PNZ here the other day. I, I, we're having trouble keeping track of so many, you know, some as big as 190 units uh, in the town. And it, 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 it means that in a short period of time, the town could be remade in, 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 in a unchangeable way uh, without local buy-in whatsoever. And so we're not asking for radical or unreasonable changes. We're asking for a balanced approach where we can achieve affordable housing goals in a sustainable and balanced way uh, and also have local buy-in and protect kind of the scope and the style of the town, um, an, you know, a balanced, pragmatic way forward. And, you know, obviously the reason last year that this problem is coming to a head, it's been around 30 years, but it's been especially problematic in the past year and will continue to be, is simply because of the economics of the matter. Um, I was talking to a former state senator who identified that this is a, an especially big problem in the late 90s and the late aughts, um, but this might be the biggest, but this is certainly the biggest crisis moment at, with regard to A30 we've ever faced. And Greenwich has never seen six or seven applications. I think in 20 years, it's all six or seven applications. So we're asking for a balanced approach. There is going to be an, a public hearing we found, we just found out a couple hours ago on 830G at the state legislature in the first week of March, which will eventually have information to forward along to all of you uh, about. But there is such a better way forward. It is a complex issue, um, but people are learning more about it. And simply, I think the message is this, reform 830G, protect local control of zoning, and advance affordable housing goals in a sustainable way with local buying. Senator Tony, are well, you having this problem in your district as well, or is this just a Greenwich, New Canaan kind of problem? Well, I, I think I think first, we do have a, a critical housing availability shortage in the state of Connecticut. Uh, it's an issue of affordability. It's an issue of availability and diversity, um, without a doubt. I mean, and, and so that is important to note. But I think the other part is, we've heard so much about 830G. I've been fighting it for over 10 years. Uh, it's become a dirty word, and, and most people don't fully understand till it happens to them. I think that's important because most people don't think it happens to them. But in my number of years, when I used to make money as a realtor, there are many of my colleagues here, um, I, I decided to go in the Senate and I'm losing money every day. Um, uh, but that being said, A30G is unusual because it's a law that's over 30 years old. And the intent is to use a hammer, in my opinion, 
to address um, inadequacies from a standpoint of, of diversity in, in communities and affordability. But it's interesting as well it is it bypasses all aspects of local control. It literally says that your local residential codes and, and, and zones does not matter if you do not qualify for a set ratio of number to your population size. And, and for many of our communities, the more that you grow, the more you're changing your population, it's almost catching a tail that you never get. So I think that's important. I, I think another critical factor on A30G is the premise of A30G is utilization of private developers to create more diverse and affordable housing stock. That if you qualify and apply under an A30G, you need to set aside 30%. Now, here's where I, I love being in meetings with Scott Hobbs. If I could replicate Scott Hobbs and, and the vision and, and the value and principles of being able to be a excellent builder, but also recognize that you can knock your margins a little bit and do quality diversification of housing in every one of your projects, then we wouldn't have the A30G dilemma that we have. But unfortunately, Scott is unique and, and, and the principle and value that, that they espouse and practice every day, they leave money on the table. And, and, and that is the problem with A30G is it's being used as a leverage by many developers in saying that if I can't get this under a normal provision of local zoning because of density, height, environmental concerns, watershed areas, then I'm going to use 830G and I'm going to sue your local municipalities and I'm going to put the hammer to you. I'm going to propose 150 units in, in a three-acre lot with no height restrictions. Some of these behaviors are, are egregious. Now, what we have right now is what, what Ryan mentioned earlier was the arrogance of a dominant one-party system. They had an overwhelming win in the last three election cycles. Call it an anti-Trump sentiment in Southwestern Connecticut. You have a, 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 a significant one-party majority with seniority dictated by a lot of my urban legislators who's saying that there is a disparity an exclusionary practice uh, conducted by our suburbs as it relates to quality of education, quality of community, quality of services. And, and they're saying that um, you are exclusionary. It has bred a organization that a lot of you have heard so much about, Desegregate Connecticut. It is not simply a nice grassroots saying that we want to change some of the socioeconomic housing dynamics. This is an organization that is funded by the Regional Planning Association, which is based in New York. It's a tri-state entity. They have significant investors and contributors that impact their size and capital funding. They just recently hired an executive director and, and I believe a, a field operator. And if you saw their org chart, it is nothing like a, a, a simple grassroots organization. This and yet well-funded well and with both houses of the legislature and the governor's seat, the desegregate Connecticut 
agenda did not pass, which tells me that somebody up there in Hartford is reasonable. They did not pass their agenda in the last session. Well, actually, John, um, it, it, they got half a pie. They, they got maybe 25% of the pie because desegregate is back at it again this year. And it was due to the effort of a lot of good colleagues, organizations like CT 169 Strong, and, and so many grassroots entities that that spoke out against it and, and, and gave local input. We had tremendous local municipal leadership that spoke out and said, look, you are overriding my local zoning control. You are dictating a one size fits all. And, and we did. They passed a lot of laws that validated and codify that local zoning rules do not exist, John. That is important to note in the bill that was passed last year. A lot of people have the feeling that, oh, we stopped them. Here, what we clarified last year by the vote and the passage of a bill is the fact that local zoning laws do not exist. It is expressly allowed by state governance. That's important that our local elected entities do not have complete and, and, and total control or last control. The bill passed last year explicitly said that the state has the expressive power to control your zoning and land use. And we let you as a town when we decide to let you do it. So that doesn't seem like a compromise to me from a standpoint of stopping things. And what we have just provided in the planning development committee in which I'm the ranking member is they're now looking at transit oriented development, looking at train station development that within a mile radius, I haven't seen the final bill, but last year it was a three mile radius drawn in any transit oriented area, buses or trains that would allow, has of right, now in a legal term, if they're legal attorneys here, has of right defines that people can build, builders can build without going through zoning. When you are given has of right privileges, you can bypass it in the specific designated area without going through local zoning. So it's important to note that the fight is far from over and, and we have ceded significant ground you're going to see significantly more projects up the line. And, and I hope that people get as energized when their lives are not impacted by these kind of projects, because it, your neighborhood could be next. Francis Pickering, you represent all the little towns in Southwest Connecticut that are saying this should be a local decision. Have the towns through Westcog come up with an alternative strategy for providing affordable housing in Connecticut? Well, thanks, John. There are a number of strategies to address affordable housing. The first thing I'd like to say is, for those of you who have not read uh, Connecticut General Statutes 8-30G and associated regulations, I would recommend you do so because it's far more nuanced than it's often made out to be in the press. It's not just 10% deed restricted housing. It also includes public housing authority units. It includes uh, households that receive public housing assistance, whether federal or state. And importantly, it also includes 
subsidized mortgages such as Connecticut Housing Finance Authority and USDA and housing units for which uh, rehabilitation loans of at least $25,000 have been provided to households that are low or moderate income based on local standards. So the reason I mention that is that there are ways to get closer to that 10% uh, than waiting for a conventional 830G project to appear from a developer. A municipality could be proactive and actually pursue moving towards that 10%, potentially at far less cost and with less impact to a community, uh, both financially in terms of the built environment and natural environment than what we've been seeing in some parts of the state. Um, and we're looking into that right now. Uh, we are completing an affordable housing plan for the entire region uh, to help with compliance with 8-30G. And we are on the verge of going out to bid on an affordable housing finance strategy, which will help communities like New Canaan to understand, let's say you have an affordable housing trust fund with a couple million dollars. How can we stretch that money as far as possible to help as many households as possible and to get us as close to the 10% threshold so then we are no longer subject to these uh, zoning overriding developments. There's a lot out there that can be explored and we're looking at that. Now, in response to your question, um, the municipalities in the region have been adopting a variety of strategies to uh, get closer to the 10%. Um, some of these are more are newer, such as uh, looking at subsidized mortgages and rehabilitation loans, uh, New Haven does that. But an affordable housing trust fund is a fantastic way to get there. Um, I'm aware New Canaan, New Canaan has one of those and Grange and Westport are talking about it. Uh, other options are inclusionary zoning where a certain percentage of new developments must be set aside uh, uh, to be uh, deed restricted affordable. And last but not least, there's incentive housing zones which the state has supported to provide affordable housing. So there are a lot of options out there and we're working very actively to help municipalities uh, get closer to their statutory thresholds. Scott Hobbs, talk to me about the economics of building affordable housing when you do have a trust fund. When you do, I think we collect 1%, 2% of all building uh, permit revenue, and we put it into a trust fund. And the housing authority, which you're on, can periodically, when they identify a project, come and ask for that money in the trust fund uh, for the purpose of affordable housing. How much money um, is there typically and what does it take to actually make affordable housing? So, so Laszlo Papp, who was our um, legendary planning and zoning uh, commissioner, uh, head of planning and zoning for a very long time, first sort of recognized the challenges and dangers proposed by 830G and set up this uh, trust fund, which allowed money to flow in, which provided seed money for affordable housing to get started. Um, there's projects that you can do with affordable housing, there's financing available, but getting from step zero up to the starting line of a project is very difficult and very expensive. And trying to compete for general housing, um, general funds from a town's budget is tough because is affordable housing more important than police, more important than social services, more important than schools, more important than any of the other things for competing. And in most communities until very recently, the answer probably would have been no. I mean, it would be very minimal at best in order to try to get those funds out. So having something that's dedicated toward affordable housing allows for that seed money to start projects. That being said, affordable housing is very complicated and a lot of people, there's a lot of rules and regulations that get into it. Um, and affordable housing is ultimately also driven by the market itself where, I mean, for Francis, I mean, the, the whole concept of, again, 
subsidizing mortgages and doing a lot of um, creative items, it is just exciting and promising until the recent real estate boom. And with the recent real estate boom, there's, you know, in desirable places, which virtually all of like lower Fairfield County is, there's no inventory. And the odds that somebody wants to go ahead and take a cut rate mortgage or get a little bit of a subsidy for something is unlikely versus selling the property to somebody who will pay a ridiculous amount of money in order to get it. So those challenges for, for affordability, it, it's more challenging for people, for people to actually find housing that's affordable, and it's more challenging in order to create affordable housing. On average, how much have you drawn per year out of the Affordable Housing Trust Fund at what pace is New Canaan spending money on affordable housing? So over the long haul, I believe it's probably around $300,000 a year has gone into the Affordable Housing Trust. There's been years where it's been almost nothing and years for something bigger. And what does it cost on average, because you've been very active for the last 10 years building, on average, what does it cost you for one unit of affordable housing? In, in nominal terms, if you were to say around $450,000 per unit. But you don't have to pay all cash. It's just like when you buy your house, you don't have to, you're not paying cash for this thing. So you need to come up with 10%, you know, roughly or something. However, some of that money must come up front. And then luckily for like the town of New Canaan is we had some land because the land is just prohibitively expensive. And thanks to the seed money, the various affordable um, uh, financing supports through the state, uh, through FHA loans, through other items, We've been able to go ahead and, and when we're done with our Canaan Paris project, we'll have rehabilitated um, 40 units of various types into 113. And then uh, we'll rehabilitated 60 Section 8 units into 60 Section 8 voucher units, plus an additional 40 affordable units. So unfortunately, over you know, 12, 13 years, we've managed to put in place around 213 units. Um, many of which have actually just been renovation, which really needed to happen. But it, it's expensive to do, and you got to follow a bunch of different rules. And then once you create it, it's expensive to manage. 215 new units. Uh, how many total, roughly? Do we have 400 units total in a town of 20,000? Oh, I wish I could say that. No, we end up having out of like we have the 213 units that replaced 100 units. Um, and then in addition to that, there's in the neighborhood of about 20 other units in town. So we're like 250. And to go ahead and get to a more, a, a, to reach our 10% goal, we would need to get well over another, we probably have to get about another 600 because as you increase the housing stock, you've got to increase the number of affordable units. So for anyone that's been in New Canaan, if you've seen our, our Millport or Canaan Parish developments, we've got to either find a way to do five to six more of those and or we've got to find hundreds of units throughout the town that we can do in ones or twos or fives or tens. Um, and both of, both of which seem very daunting. And so in New Canaan, there's like 7,000 housing units total in the entire town. 7,600. So if, if you're getting to 10% by a set aside developments, you're having to build 2,000 new housing units in the town of 7,000 housing units. If I may, Scott, I actually, a question I wanted to ask is the unique New Canaan set-aside fund, I believe Public Act 21-29 now eliminates that. Well, 
it, it, that gets to one of my, my other qualms was how the affording affordable housing bureaucracy is set up. I actually, Chuck Berman, who was the chairman before me, he was just a genius under development stuff. And I learned so much from him, it was great. And one day I show up and I'm told I have to become chairman because he's he's now moved out of New Canaan. <laughs> and you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I was, that, that's not what I was doing. But I become chairman and we were about to start our next um, phase of, of work at Millport where we were taking 24 public housing units and making them into 73, um, 73 affordable units. And Connecticut Housing Authority calls up and says, yeah, you can't do that project because the 24 units aren't, uh, they haven't, um, they're still current. You can't tear them down. And it's like, wait, 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 no, no. I'm, I'm taking 24 and making it into 75, um, 73. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, I, I don't know if we can make that happen. And it took us six months and about a half million dollars in legal fees in order to convince everyone that taking 23 and turning it into 24 and turning it into 73 would actually be good. Francis, you seem to have a... Yes, well, yeah, just in response to Senator Fazio's uh, point, you know, one of the challenges is uh, inclusionary zoning is very attractive because you're pushing the costs of the affordable units onto the other buyers in the complex. It's not a public cost. The challenge is if you are only requiring 10% to be set aside, you will never actually get to 10% town-wide because you already have the installed base of existing units. So most communities say, well, let's do 12%. The problem is I just ran the math in Excel for New Canaan. If you did 12% set aside, to get to 10% town-wide, right? So you have 7,600 units right now. To get to 10% town-wide, you would have to build over 13,000 new housing units at all income levels. So you would be closer to a population of around uh, uh, potentially 75, 80,000 people. It, inclusionary zoning can help, but it's a drop in the bucket. If we're looking at getting towards the 10%, and this is the challenge with 830G, is that you're on this treadmill where you're going slightly faster than the treadmill. Um, that really conversion of existing units is far more uh, important because you're increasing the numerator at the same rate you're increasing the denominator in that, that 830G 10% fraction, right? You know, one and one on top, one on the bottom, not one on top and 12 on the bottom. If I may, I, there, there are three challenges that you're going to have in this, uh, John and Scott, and, and, and you can validate this from, from the audience, which is realtors. Here's the challenge. You're going to have demand. They build 150 units, and it may look absolutely awful on Main Street, but I can assure you, you're going to sell every one of those units to a baby boomer population that's looking to downsize and want to stay in the community. So you're talking about a, a, a real supply and demand problem that's going to accentuate more of these kind of projects because you've got a consumer base. And for my realtors out there, you're going to sell those units. You're going to sell them quickly. So that's one problem. The other significant problem that people don't like to talk about is the strategic attack of saying you are discriminatory, you are racist, and you are exclusionary. Um, it, 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 it is a hard thing for a lot of individuals that are Caucasian, right? To fight against. 
And my legislators don't want that fight in the heel of the challenges of diversity and, and, and social equity. You hear that a lot. There are a lot of colleagues that won't touch it, won't touch it with a 10 foot pole. And, and perhaps what makes me kind of interesting is the fact, look, I'm a Republican in Fairfield, but I grew up in a federal housing project. I'm Asian American. And I believe in affordable housing. So they have a lot of trouble with me, but I'm willing to speak out. The problem is there are many people that have taken a side and saying, you know what? I don't need this battle. I don't want to be categorized as racist or discriminatory and not recognizing social equity. I think the third problem is ultimately you have different economics here than any other parts of the state. Because land cost, construction cost, density, um, and believe it or not, our communities have one of the highest rate of open space preservation and environmental protection concerns. So that combination creates a really daunting challenge in regards to where you're going to build, where you're going to build and, and, and not impact uh, communities. So these three things are are, are just a terrible, terrible position. They're not having this problem in Scotland, in Eastern Connecticut, Scotland, Connecticut, Putnam. They're not having it in Harwinton. You're having it in lower Fairfield County where those three criteria that I talked about have created an untenable public image and, and, and a reality. Look, you're gonna build those units. I'm telling you, every one of those realtors that, that's part of this audience right now, they're gonna sell it and they're gonna sell it out quick. I would like to understand why we haven't heard more creative solutions. I heard recently that the governor, the new governor of New York proposed um, an, uh, an affordable housing solution based on accessory apartments and wanted to fund it in the current budget. And I think I left a link in my invitation today uh, that was recently defeated in the Senate. And they said, take it out of the budget. We don't like that approach. But a lot of people applauded that governor for looking um, for a more creative solution. It occurs to me that if New Canaan is 99% developed and Greenwich is 99% developed, that um, we have to look for a more creative solution. And it occurs to me that um, as a realtor, Anytime I'm asked um, for a, an inexpensive rental in New Canaan for, somebody's, um, for, for somebody who works in town, somebody says, I would like you to help me find an inexpensive rental for somebody who works in town, uh, they want to live in town. The first, and I say, how much do you want to spend? And they tell me $2,000 a month. The first place I look is for carriage houses, or other accessory apartments. For a hundred years, we've been looking to our accessory apartments for our most affordable housing. So it's amazing to me that the governor of New York, uh, when she proposes such a solution, was rejected by her Senate. Is our Senate talking about this? Is our governor talking about this? Is there a way that does not require new development of five-story buildings? Any of you? Well, I, I think so. And 
that's part of the, part of the, the letter, the legislative letter I submitted, was try to change what counts as affordable housing. Because first of all, we're not recognizing all the affordable housing that we have in these towns. You know, we have a lot more than is actually being counted because in order to count under 830G, as Francis pointed out, you have to meet a bunch of different criteria rather than simply saying, if it costs this much or less, it is affordable. And yes, markets change, so prices change. And forcing deed restriction is, is something that's not attractive to a lot of property owners or landlords. So they are often charging, um, they are often charging you know, an affordable rental rate for a unit but it's not being counted in the 830G calculation. So in a case like Greenwich, which is actually a unbelievably diverse town, and we have four Title I schools, and 25% of our student population is free and reduced lunch, how is it possible that we're only getting 5.4% credit for affordable housing if 25% of our student population is free and reduced lunch? They're living somewhere. So it's just, it's obviously a, a falsity that there's only 5.4% affordable housing. So we need to change the regulation so it's actually a recognizes recognizing all the naturally affording uh, occurring affordable housing and so the way we thought through this with some of the, the the local zoning people is is that you could give the municipal municipality an option to verify all naturally occurring affordable housing whether it's employer provided whether it's an accessory dwelling unit um uh etc et ex post um, through either affidavits or verifying leases. Um, and obviously that number is going to change more year to year because it's not going to be deed restricted, but nevertheless, you're giving the municipality the option of, of going through the effort of counting it. And so not only do you get recognized for all the affordable housing that you're creating in a discreet manner, in a discreet manner, I think that's important because that's, I think, what the community has more an appetite for, um, but also you're encouraging the creation instead of highly dense, concrete, brutalist development that nobody wants, you're encouraging the creation of more discreet um, affordable housing, but but it's it's still one affordable housing unit should be one affordable housing unit as long as it's affordable. Um, it shouldn't have to jump through all these barriers. So that's kind of my thought process. And, and, Ryan, and, and, and Ryan, I would love, oh, I'm sorry, Scott, go ahead. Well, Ryan, cutting to your point, I mean, when a problem inside of New Canaan is that when we get to develop affordable housing, we almost have to do 60% affordable, even though it's actually slightly difficult to get one bedroom 60% affordable filled. We would love to do more 80, but we're forced to go ahead and get on that treadmill that, that we're just barely running ahead of. And if we do 80%, the treadmill is getting ahead of us. So we have to do 60. So we're ignoring 80. We're ignoring you know, other housing things that would actually be very beneficial to the community because we have to go ahead and defend against 830G instead of doing what's good for our community. Sorry, Tony. Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I love Ryan's idea. It, it's thinking and, and it's adapting some flexibility. Uh, uh, one of the problems with 830G, it, it only considers under the motor, moratorium houses that were built after 1990. So mm -hmm. if a community has existing uh, a, a deed restricted uh, affordable housing stock, it doesn't count. And, and even if it's 95% refurbished, as many of these projects have over the lifetime of their existence, it still doesn't count as, as new inventory stock. 
Uh, and I think the second part of it is it, it, it's yielding the hammer of, of saying that the community, and if you look at the numbers, our communities on Southwestern Connecticut represented Westcock are significantly uh, short in regards to numbers, but, but it's not just New Canaan and, and, and Greenwich. I've got Weston and Easton that are virtually 75% watershed. They control the reservoir and, and considerations of, of environmental and watershed protection. They can't, they can't take in dense housing stock. They don't have the sewage capacity. Another part of the bill that you should read up on for those that are environmental advocates. And it's fascinating because the bill that was passed last year had tremendous, tremendous environmental support. But the very bill talks about literally obliterating sewage capacity protection. It's kind of remarkable how we're selling the narrative of, of ending discrimination, ending social equity, and, and, and addressing a lot of the niceties that, that we all want. But the bill itself doesn't do anything. L let's be clear. It was admitted through testimony that the bills that were proposed does nothing to increase affordable housing stock in those communities. How do you like that? None of the bills proposed by Desegregate Connecticut literally, and we're being taped here, so I'm absolutely happy to stand by what they said. It does nothing to address the crisis that we have in, in, in creating diverse, accessible, and affordable housing stock in communities in need. And we're not even talking about, we're talking about suburbs here, but as I said earlier, the state of Connecticut as a whole has an affordable housing crisis. Our cities have been shortchanged in regards to safe, affordable, and diverse housing stock. It's remarkable how the narrative has been changed. And one way they're getting things done is they're making you feel defensive and reactionary. So if the, I think if uh, those people who are writing this legislation up in Hartford were here, they would say, we're not looking for a way to give you credit for your existing affordable housing stock. We're not looking to make this more comfortable for you. We are looking to impart a sense of urgency on you people in Greenwich and New Canaan. Uh, we need you to feel a sense of urgency because you're not doing it fast enough. And um, Scott Hobbs is saying, well, we're doing it as fast as we can. And even when I have the commitment of, um, of, of building permit taxes, and millions of dollars put. He's, I, I think Scott's told me that he hasn't found any land he could buy for the housing authority. And what you're telling me is in a place like Easton, there's really no land that the town of Easton could buy to produce more housing. That um, Francis has a comment on this one. Yeah, well, you know, John, that's an excellent point. And many of the housing advocates, their primary objective is to get more affordable housing built. And that's a laudable goal. Uh, we're, I'm, I'm, we're totally clear about that. But if you don't have good data, you can't make good policy. And by not counting the existing housing stock, we actually don't know what the need is. The other thing we're not doing is we're not giving an incentive 
for people to provide naturally occurring affordable housing. Most property owners do not want to subject themselves to a 40-year deed restriction. Um, they are not public housing authorities. There are many options for small mom and pop landlords, whether it's an accessory dwelling unit, a two-family home, a duplex or a triple decker, to carve out another unit and provide a huge amount of housing stock in a way that fits right into the community, doesn't change the neighborhood or create a huge burden on social services, really improves the community, but 8-30G literally does nothing to incentivize that. That has been the bedrock of affordable housing for over a hundred years, and yet the law does not address that. So it's not about trying to get out of jail free or jump ahead of the 10%. It's about making sure that all types of affordable housing are valued and incentivized. And I think that it, some of the rules also ignore the fact that in the communities such as like New Canaan and Darien that are 96, 97% built out. So without knocking down stock, you can't do anything. And even subdividing becomes hard. It, you, you, we, we're not a growing community and we can't grow unless we get more supermarkets, unless we find a lot of space for schools, unless we get a bigger police department, can we get a bigger fire department? You know, adding five to 10,000 people to New Canaan, it's no longer New Canaan. It doesn't work that way. And, and again, is New Canaan as desirable if we're doing school during the summer because we're working four semesters or three semesters or something and kids have to go during the summer because we just don't have the infrastructure to put it in place? And if you can't find a parking space anywhere in the middle of town, does that work for anyone? Hey, what do you mean we don't have the infrastructure? I'm going to argue with you on this. What infrastructure do you need? So I give you, the town gives you the housing authority, a four acre piece of, of land and says, build uh, 10 units of affordable housing, build me a small, you know. I'm not, and I'm not talking about 10. I'm talking about the goals that have been set for us in Hartford. They want to create hundreds, if not thousands of units and they don't care about the, na the nature of the community. And if you were to add, if you were to add, well, let's, let's get up to the 10%, let's say we had to do that with all new housing. So if we had to add 600 more units um, to the town, and let's say that you end up having a third of those have kids. So we're adding, let's say 600, 700 kids to the community. You end up adding, I mean, it's, it's you know, our schools don't quite fit. And there's certainly the schools aren't in the right place. We go through a whole redistricting and kids go to different places. And now we're back to trailers in the parking lot for kids to attend school. We probably need some more police department if we're going to add another thousand residents. Is it one cop? Is it two? I don't know. You know, when it gets to rush hour, you know, New Canaan doesn't have a lot of traffic. We were, we're pretty good. But on the couple arteries in and out of town, if you're trying to get in and out of town from seven o'clock to nine or from four o'clock until six, there's some big backups. So now let's just add another thousand cars to that. And, and there's a whole lot of things that get tricky. And then you know, our sewer capacity, we're okay on sewer capacity until we're not. And then you got a 30 million, $40 million upcharge in order to upgrade your sewer capacity. So there's things that, that these all have implications. And it's not as if, again, we've got um, you know, a couple thousand acres of farmland that we're going to convert into subdivisions and we'll build schools and parks and all of those things. This is important um, in order to think through all of the uh, implications. I mean, if you take old SimCity, I mean, all the video games and stuff where you try to create your own community, and it's hard to keep everyone happy in those games, just as it is running a real town. 
And I, I, I don't want to change the topic too much, but I want to zoom out because the context here is that um, you can't have affordable housing in the long run if you don't have jobs. You need an income to afford housing. And Connecticut has fewer jobs today than it did at the end of 1997. 1997. In that time, the rest of the country increased the number of jobs by 25%. So we're kind of putting the cart before the horse here. Fairfield County in the last 10 years is the only county of the eight in Connecticut that saw its population grow. So you would consider, given the fact that demand for housing has actually fallen in absolute terms in seven of the eight counties in Connecticut, by that, by that, measure, by that consideration, you would expect those seven counties to be booming because the housing has become more affordable because the demand has dropped. But that's obviously not the case. There's no jobs and economic growth in Connecticut. And this, is, this entire discussion should be set against the background of, of, of a failed economy and failed economic policy in this state for 20 or 30 years. Um, and so if we don't get that on track, if we don't create jobs and grow incomes in this state and grow the economy in this state and have a plan and economic reforms in order to accomplish that, then, then there's never any hope because the only way to afford, you know, to afford housing and to join the middle class is to have good paying jobs and a lot of them. And we don't have that in Connecticut. And I think that context is also important to this housing conversation. And, and, and if I may, Scott, what is uh, just a range? What, what are the numbers for New Canaan to be able to meet for the moratorium of A30G? Sure. So right now we're in the process of filling out an application. We've hit the numbers by combining the end of Millport 2 and the phase one of Canaan Parish. And how um, many units is that? And so that the in, in really, really, really rough numbers, if you yep. were to consider about 70 units and you have mixes of two bedroom units, three bedroom units, one bedroom unit, 60 percent, 80 percent. So in really rough terms, if you were to say 70 units gets you a moratorium. So let me share with this audience, uh, and John and, and Scott, thank you very much for having me and, and, and doing this program. Let me share with you two bills that are happening in the General Assembly right now that has a real chance of advancing um, because the bill last year, 6611, is called the Fair Share Housing Bill. Uh, I don't know, Scott, you grimaced. So it was an idea that continues to be pushed by the Speaker of the House. Now he runs the House and, and the majority leader rather of the House. And it talks about a fair share formula based upon the criteria as a measure. It's an analytical analysis, right? I just looked on the sheet and it's a rough number, but based upon this fair share formula, that could become law this year, you are looking at New Canaan in order to meet the fair share requirement, you need to produce 1,350 units. Get that right. 1,350 units of fair share housing calculation versus the 70 that you had just struggled to reach in your moratorium. This fair share formula is a bill that just got raised in the Planning and Development Committee. We're going to have a public hearing on it. That's a real concern. I, I, I mentioned the transit-oriented development considerations. I, I'll give more details 
But for all the people that are here in the audience, uh, I, I want to give a shout out to ct169strong.org. They have been tremendous in updating this information. Um, and and uh, you'll get that background information. But as the bills get raised, we just in, in the leadership of planning development raise these bills. So you'll see it um, tomorrow when we raise it and there'll be public hearings in the next week and a half. So I'll get you this information, but the fair share one, Scott, will, will scare. It's horrible. It, it, it was just, it, the numbers are just astronomical in the challenges you have. So I just added in the chat window and an email I received from Andrea Sandor saying that a lot of towns already allow use of accessory apartments. Many towns already do this. It seemed, and she goes on to say that it is preferable to spread your affordable housing throughout the community rather than concentrate it in one high-rise building. So if many are already doing this and it is preferable to spread it around, how hard would it be, Senator, Senator, to, uh, to begin to adjust 830G and, and what it takes to qualify? I mean, is this, is this a pipe dream that because you began the conversation by saying a lot of legislators don't even want to touch this third rail issue, because um, if you weaken 830G, uh, if you start to take the teeth out, you could be accused of being a racist. So how does, how does the legislature begin to adjust and make this a more perfect law? Um, I, 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 unfortunately, I've been knee deep in this, John. It's a very good question. And, and as I said earlier, the suggestion made by Ryan, Senator Fazio, is a common sense one. Uh, but people need to understand the challenge. A30G was initiated 30 years ago. It has not been touched for over 25 years. I was the chair of the housing committee in a tri-party agreement with a Democratic senator and a Democratic House member. Um, we were able to put through a small revision of the A30G language. We allowed the formula because it, it heavily weights to weights to family units, multiple bedroom units versus over 55. So if you have over 55 uh, density housing, multiple unit housing, you only get half a percentage point towards your moratorium. We changed that formula to be able to account for that calculation, it was, it was rejected by Governor Malloy. In the eight years, hold on, in the eight years that Governor Malloy was, was governor, there was only one bill that overrode his veto. And that was the change to A30G. And the only way we got that agreement done was a sunset that after five years, it would go back to the original. We are now at the fifth year in which the formula will go back to the original. There's a new sheriff in town. His name is Governor Lamont. What's the, this is our year, Senator. Yeah, well, this is Governor our year. Lamont, Governor Lamont in his first year resisted and, and held a line. But as he, he kind of went through and he's up for reelection this year, and, and he doesn't want to be portrayed as being a Greenwich elitism who is 
exclusive and exclusionary. Nor so guess does what? he want to be accused. He of being totally backed off on this. I People. can share with you. He's totally taken a position that he supports affordable housing and diversity, and we need to do more. He's taking a hands off on this. And yet the people are angry throughout Fairfield County at, at feeling that uh, Hartford is taking one big sledgehammer, boom, to these towns and ignoring local, local control. Absolutely. So, it's a big hammer, too. Look, there was so, a bill last year that was raised by the, the, the president of the Senate. Again, another powerful influencer of bill legislation. And the bill was, if your community did not meet the minimum affordable housing ratio, you would be assessed a supplemental income tax assessment. It didn't pass out of finance committee, in which I'm in, but that was another example of saying, you're bad, we're going to punish you, and the only way we're going to do it is because you won't do it on your own. They were going to assess a, 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 an additional income, uh, a property tax assessment from the state because you didn't meet your affordable housing. So was that actually, was that the lobbying for that sponsored by the delegations from Florida and Texas trying to get more residents to move there? <laughs> no, it was, it was done by the president pro tem of, of the Senate. Um, and he was serious. No, I bet he has ties to Florida though. I mean, what a great way to kick out the rest of our residents. Yeah. 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 DeSantis happy about that. Yeah. I got to believe that a governor who is pro affordable housing, if given a solution that he could get behind, would do so. And so Ryan's proposal, I mean, am I just naive? Ryan's proposal, uh, the, the, the Democratic governor of New York's proposal, which is to begin to get serious about accessory dwellings, I can't imagine that he would just reject that out of out of hand. Well, just getting I think you know, Ryan and, and, and Francis both had pointed out and same with Tony that if we don't have good data, because something that confuses this whole discussion is the actual rent that somebody pays has nothing to do with the legal affordable housing discussion. It's totally irrelevant, doesn't count. And so we're not even really discussing the same things here. So, I mean, I, I try to actually utilize terminology like legally qualified affordable housing versus affordable housing. And, and there's two separate issues, two separate issues. So I think getting the data, I mean, and, Let's follow the science, but I mean, let's go ahead and let's get the data and actually figure out where we are. And then from there, we might be able to make better decisions. Connecticut has the lowest real estate appreciation. You're cutting hear you, Ryan. Sorry. Back, can back. you hear me now? Better. Better. The, the state of Connecticut has the lowest real estate value appreciation of any state in the country since 1991. Uh, that's, I think, another point of context. But again, you know, Ultimately, when making changes, Tony's as bipartisan a guy as there is, and I, I, I try, I pride myself on trying to build relationships across the aisle. And, and we have gotten a couple of local Democratic legislators um, to sign on to a press release in the past week or so, and I'm, I'm very happy about it. Um, ultimately, this is an important issue in an election year that um, that could see a lot of uh, seats turnover and. Uh, candidates for office should be on the record about what they're willing to do in order to protect local control of zoning and approach affordable housing in sustainable ways. That's ultimately how you can make
So, so I, I, if you couldn't hear Ryan, uh, Senator Fazio, one thing I heard was Connecticut has had one of the lowest uh, appreciation rates for real estate over the, since 1990. Um, and one of the other things I heard was that uh, in an election year, um, the, minor, the Senator Fazio is reaching across the aisle and trying to propose solutions, um, right? Yep. Okay, and then we're trying to work in a bipartisan way. Um, can anybody end this program with some hope, with some hopeful statements? I mean, I thought that was rather hopeful. It's an election year, politicians are paying attention and residents in Fairfield County uh, are paying attention to this and it's a, it's a big deal. Um, so go ahead, Mr. Pickering. Well, thank you. You know, there, 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 where there's a will, there's a way. And creative thinking can get us a lot of the way there. Uh, I would like to point to Public Act 21 and 29 from this last year. It really brought a renewed attention to accessory dwelling units, which have been pointed out in the chat as a way to really diversify our housing stock at a relatively low cost. Um, the challenge with those, in many cases, is financing. We've solved the legal problem. Legislation is not the solution here. The challenge is that many households do not have the capital at hand to build an accessory apartment through renovation or an addition or an outbuilding. It's a financing problem that the Connecticut Housing Finance Authority or banks could address. So I, sometimes I think we focus a bit too much on the legislature and there are things we can do outside the legislature. Uh, and so I would say there, there's actually hope here because we have a lot of the laws in place we need to advance this. We just have to work at it. And, and I, I do want to leave it in encouraging as well, John. I'll give you an example. Um, the, the recent project that was uh, opened by Governor Lamont in Greenwich, in which uh, uh, Senator Fazio, First Selectman, Camillo, that's an example of, of, of being able to create the, the affordable housing stock, but it was done by collaborating with local authorities, local governance, with the trust fund, and state authority and funding, and the federal government. And it was a well-designed uh, entity that, that kind of incorporates the community involvement and address real, real affordable housing. Another example that we did was um, our Department of Transportation in Connecticut owns a huge swath of lands that we don't even realize. Uh, in Westport that I represented in the district, we were able to take five acres of, of about 12 acre DOT land. And we were able to propose through the town of Westport, their affordable housing task force, federal government and state government to build 40 units of strictly de-restricted um, uh, federal and state affordable housing. And the surrounding neighborhoods in Westport all embrace the idea. Senator, are you proposing to build affordable housing on the median strip of I-95? But no, go but, long but I will enough. share with you, but I will share with you, there are many highways Route seven, many of the roads, you'd be amazed how many, how much land DOT owns that we don't even realize that if there could be a collaboration between 
state, local, and federal government to create stock that is consistent with everybody's input, that's the way we can go on addressing it. I, I know it's been proven in Westport. We were able to do it after a year and a half of fighting, but, but this was a win-win type of project that didn't offend people's sensibilities and everybody bought into it. Trying to be positive here, John. I'm gonna give Scott Hobbs the last word, but before I do, I wanna plug, on this show, on March 17, Governor Lamont has agreed to, to be alive for one hour. And I said to his people, uh, we would like to talk to Governor Lamont about uh, real estate, about housing, about things that are important to realtors. And he said, okay, I wanna talk about my vision. So he's gonna be on here. I invite all of you and I invite you, Senator uh, Tony and Senator Ryan, uh, please come back and help me ask intelligent questions this is not a hatchet job. I am not looking to, um, you know, sort of um, pin him down on his record. I really want to hear about what the vision is looking forward insofar as it affects us as realtors. So if all of you can help me do that, uh, I invite you back on the, on the 17th when we get to talk to Governor Lamont. I'm very excited that he wants to talk to us as realtors and, you know, and share with us his vision on why he's doing what he's doing and why is he taking the positions he's taking. Scott, do you wanna take us out? Uh, I'd say another of the hopeful elements is that there's a lot of really smart people that really care about the communities that are now really actively engaged in trying to figure out solutions. And I think for a long time, a lot of people were not paying as much attention as maybe they could have, but now a lot of folks are. And a lot have very good will. Some don't have good will. You have some people who are pushing boundaries uh, you know, they, basically the box is being picked up and shaken. And hopefully out of this, we can come with some good solutions that'll actually, you know, really help the, the, the residents of the state, as opposed to hitting some sort of a magical definition, you know, magical numbers set on a magical definition of what people consider to be right. And maybe we can actually deal with the real issues. All right. So I'm hopeful that, that people are paying attention. And we'll get there. A couple of them right here on this call, for which we owe thanks to, uh, both of the senators and Francis. Yes, thank you so and much, others. Francis Pickering. Thank you so much, Senators Tony and Ryan for agreeing to do this on very short notice. But I think it's really important. As you see, we've had 50 people listening quite closely for an hour. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it's one of the most important issues we're facing. Uh, certainly, if you read the headlines in Greenwich or in New Canaan lately, you see that this is top of mind. So thank you very much for helping us you know, basically flesh out some of these issues. You're here. Thank you, John. It's a great program. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. See you, anybody. See you all next week, four o'clock Thursday, and on the seventeenth for the governor. Thanks. Bye. Enjoy all.